Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who has done it all in the game of baseball. He's a former Major League pitcher, manager, and broadcaster. During a 14-year baseball career as a pitcher, he pitched from 1964 to 1977 for the Houston Colt 45s and the Astros and the St. Louis Cardinals. He also managed the Astros for five years, 1997 to 2001. He made his Major League pitching debut on his 18th birthday and struck out Willie Mays in the first inning. In 1969, he became the Astros franchise first 20-game winner. He is a two-time All-Star. He pitched a no-hitter was a National League Manager of the Year. His number 49 jersey has been retired by the Astros, and he's a member of the Astros Hall of Fame. It is a thrill to welcome Larry Durker to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Larry. Thank you. You Let's go back to June of 1964. You actually become the third Valley Prep player to be signed by Houston following Kurt Fontenot and Steve Smith, who were, and you're also a uh, two-sports star at Taft High School. There were interests from the Twins, the Cubs, as well as the 45s. So who from the 45s signed you, and what do you remember about that signing process? Uh, the, uh, the regional scout was a guy named Jim Wilson, who was later became the um, head guy in the, in the scouting combine. And uh, Carl Keel was the area scout. Uh, oddly enough, when I pitched the no-hitter in 76, he was managing the Expos. And so he was in the other dugout. Um, the thing that made a difference for me was that uh, when they realized that they might be in a betting war, uh, Paul Richards came out, and he was the general manager of the team. And they set, uh, they set up a workout where I pitched against two left-handed hitters. Uh, one, I think, from the San Diego area. I'm not sure who it was. The other uh, from Los Angeles was Willie Crawford, who later played with the Dodgers. <laughs> And uh, I, I pretty uh, much <laughs> overpowered both of them at the time. They hardly hit the ball out of the cage. So uh, I think that made a big difference. And then uh, when it actually came to the day that I could sign after I graduated, the, the Cubs offered me 30000 And my dad had told me, you know, if they didn't offer me more than that, I should take the scholarships. I had UCLA and Stanford. Uh, so I was excited because I wanted to play pro ball, and they already offered me 30. Then the, the Colt 45s called and offered me 35, and I told them that I promised the Cubs that I wouldn't sign until the next day. And that was the first time I ever experienced, and the only time, really, the, the power of free agency because uh, once the Colt 45s knew I wasn't going to sign until the next day, they were determined to... Um, to get me before the Cubs talked to me again. So then they offered me 40, then 45, then 50, then 55, all before midnight. They just kept calling back and offering me more money. And uh, finally, 55 with eight semesters of of, uh, college, a scholarship, which is something my dad wanted me to do anyway, and I didn't mind doing. Uh, So that's that's how it came about. And... uh, it was really, it was just amazing to, to go from high school where I knew I threw hard, but I had trouble getting breaking ball over to where I, 
I was pitching in the major leagues three months later. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing because not only that, you you sign, you head to the instructional league as a seventeen year old. What was the difference, uh, competition wise, between you know the instructional league and going from high school to there? What what was the major difference? There were uh, two com- contributing forces there. One, uh, the league that I played in in Southern California was a really good league, and and there were probably eight or ten guys signed that year out of that league, and others got scholarships. And uh, uh, so maybe I thought if if everybody has as many good players all over the country, there's bound to be other guys that can throw as hard as I can, and there were a few, I suppose. Um, the other thing is when I got down there, uh, they asked me if I'd ever heard of a sinker, and I said no. And so they showed me how to throw that, and it was just automatic, like it was just as easy as anything I had ever done in my life. And the ball, now I had a ball that would ride and a ball that would sink. And then they said, have you ever thrown a slider? And I said, no. I, I, you know, when I listen to Dodger games, I, I've heard them talking about sliders, but I really don't know what it is. And they said, well, just see if you can take a baseball and throw a spiral with it. So on about the third one, I had a slider. So all of a sudden, I had sinker, slider, rider, and I could get them all over the plate. So I was a much better pitcher by the end of that summer than I had been in high school. But also the high school league was just tougher than I realized. And so the competition at the rookie league level uh, wasn't all that much better, I didn't think. So, you know, it was it was real odd the way that, that all came together. And I don't think they even wanted uh, necessarily – I don't think they – even knew when I came to Houston that they were that I was going to pitch in a game. I just I struck out so many guys that they wanted to show the I guess the big league coaches and manager wanted to see who the speed out was, and so they brought me to Houston and I just kind of did a workout before the game and threw on the side. And after I'd been there about a week, uh, I guess the PR guy noticed that I had a birthday coming up, and you know they they were an expansion team and so. Uh, they were doing anything in, they could to try to draw a crowd. And so they asked me if I would pitch, and I said, sure. And I pitched, and it got mazed. Later, Cepeda hit a two-run homer off me. But then I pitched in San Francisco, and I pitched in Los Angeles. And at the end of the year, I had nine innings pitched and, and two runs scored, and I was 0-1. <laughs> you know, you talk about that, and it struck me as odd that in this world now where we have so many highlight shows, had that occurred today? You know, your 18th birthday, September 22nd, you're making your first major league start, you face Willie Mays, you know, you, and not only that, forget it, you know, a lot is made of, of Willie Mays as, as a strikeout, but the first batter you face as a major league pitcher is a former batting champion, Harvey Keene. Um, also, that was the only time you actually pitched at Colt Stadium also because the following year they go to the Astrodome. But on top of that, you never went back to the minors. So what was the feeling walking out to that mound the first day, and how much confidence did you gain from not only striking out Willie Mays, the batter before him was a pretty good batter too also in Jim Ray Hart. Did that kind of signal to you that, hey, even though I'm 18 years old, I just struck out Willie Mays, I kind of belong here? Yeah, well, I don't know if I felt belong, but I felt like I was uh, overmatched. Um, actually, Harvey Keene 
probably helped me strike down Mays because I sailed a couple of the balls over his head and and walked him. And uh, so uh, I think Mays was kind of light on his feet. And I, after two strikes, I threw a slider that started out at him and broke over the inside part of the plate. And, and he was bailing, and he just <laughs> took it for a strike, and that's, that's how that happened. Um, you know, uh, knowing that I could do it was partly – uh, having done it a little bit, that many innings really wouldn't tell you anything. But uh, just watching the the other Colt 45 pitchers during the workouts, you know, I'd be out there for batting practice. If somebody threw on the side, I'd walk over there and watch them. And I just didn't see anybody that could throw the ball any better than I could. And so I knew I had a, a, a lot to learn, and I knew that those guys had uh, – tricks and experience and, and ways of getting out so that uh, I'd never dreamed of, but just in terms of raw stuff, I thought, well, if I don't walk a whole bunch of guys, you know, I'm going to throw the sinker and they're going to hit it on the ground and the slider is sometimes a strikeout pitch and the, the fastball sometimes is a strikeout pitch upstairs and so I I think that probably by the next spring, the next spring uh I had the team made before I even got there, which I didn't know. And I didn't, even when people told me, I didn't believe them because I felt like I should try to make the team. But uh, at that time, a team could designate two prospects to go to the minor leagues and be protected from a draft. And if they wanted to protect more than two, they had to keep them on the major league team, kind of like the Rule 5. And... Uh, so when I got to spring training, they said, well, they're going to take these two other guys who are position players and get them their 400 at-bats. But if we take a couple of pitchers that we want to protect, uh, we, you can pitch in the bullpen and pitch pop-up games where you're way behind or maybe get an inning when you're way ahead. But pitch in low-pressure uh, low situations for a team that was not going to be a contending team. And so that was their logic. And, and so I... I made the team based on my pitching and that rule. And the the thing that I thought was going to uh, bring me down was the first game that I pitched in the Astrodome, which was a, an inter-squad game the day before the Dome opened with an exhibition with the Yankees. And during that exhibition, uh, during the, you know, the inter-squad game we played the day before, uh, that's when they learned that, uh, that the fielders weren't going to be able to catch pop-ups and fly balls. Uh, <laughs> you probably heard about that. Yeah, you know, they yeah, had to yeah. Paint some of those panels in <laughs> order for the the, the outfielders and infielders to see the ball go up. Once they saw it go up, they could catch it. Right. Uh, anyway, I was pitching, and and the guys were running around the bases like a merry-go-round. It seemed like everybody was hitting a pop fly or a fly ball. None of them were going out of the ballpark, but none of them were getting caught either. <laughs> So I had this fleeting thought that I was going to get sent back to AAA because of that game, <laughs> but uh, I wasn't. It's also interesting because the offseason of 68, the Astros acquired catcher Johnny Edwards from the Cardinals. Edwards had a huge impact on your career. That first season with him, you have your only 20-win uh, season. Uh, we mentioned before it was the first in Houston franchise history, and you would make the first of your two All-Star games. How did Johnny make you a better pitcher? Well, uh, he was a veteran. He was a, a, an excellent catcher. He was a bright guy. 
know, he had a degree uh, from Ohio State, and I, I just really had a lot of confidence in him. And, and I uh, had gone to winter ball uh, a year before that and learned to throw my breaking ball, my slider, behind an account, occasionally a change-up behind an account. And so it was a matter of having the confidence to do that. And um, he just told me in spring training, here's what we're going to do this spring. You're going to, you know, take a step forward as a pitcher and not just a guy with good stuff. And and so I won five games that spring. Uh, I won every game that I started. He caught every one of them. And he was, you know, even thereafter, he was the best catcher I ever pitched to. And you know, the, the only one that, that ever would call for a breaking ball in the dirt uh, with a guy on third base, which uh, gives you some idea what kind of confidence he had about stopping it, because he would call a breaking ball and then pat his head on it, you know, out in front of the plate that he wanted it down around the ankles, and and I'd try to throw it there, and if I got it down there, he'd block it. Wow! And sometimes the guy would swing. So, Larry, this is AJ Cord. So, in 1969, you have a great season. You win 20 games. Uh, you become the Astros' first 20-game winner. You have 20 complete games, which is People have 20 complete games in a career these days now. So, but, but it's 1969, it's 50 years from now, and, and the Astros, the Cole 45s, and the Mets enter the league at the same time. So in the course of you having this great 20-game season, the Mets, meanwhile, come and go on and sweep. Miracle Mets win the pennant, win the World Series. What were things like in the Astros clubhouse, looking at a team that came to the league the same time as the Mets, to watch the Mets go on and win the pennant in the World Series? Uh, well, uh, I think like everybody else, we, we thought the Braves uh, probably had more talent. Everybody knew the Mets had pitching. Um, uh, but, you know, the only team the Mets didn't beat that year was the Colt 45s. They had a winning record against everyone else, so we went 10-2 and two against them. And so, you know, we were naturally thinking, well, they had, you know, they had this pitching, but we had Jimmy Wynn and Joe Morgan and Rusty Stott and all these guys. We thought we had a much better hitting team, and we probably did have a better hitting team. But obviously, uh, Destiny was on their side, and you know they uh, they just did everything they had to do to beat the Braves. I went, remember one particular game where Nolan Ryan came in on the bullpen and was unhittable, and uh, and the Magic continuing against Baltimore in the World Series. The, you know the Orioles probably had a better team than they did too. But uh, a lot of times the postseason is. Uh, comprised of a lot of teams that are very good, and it comes down to the team that gets hot. I remember the Mets could never win in the Astrodome yeah. in those early years either, yeah. on top of that. 1970- on top of that, one thing that was interesting about those days is that uh, I think it was Tommy Agee slid into Joe Morgan and, and broke his knee, and he, he had to have surgery and was out for the rest of the year. And so that started kind of a knockdown war. You don't see too many of those anymore, but uh, we started throwing at them, and they started throwing at us, and we were expansion rivals, and that was probably the first thing that was close to a rivalry um, in Astros history. I don't know how the Mets felt about it, but I did, because there were times when I had to throw the pitches. No, that's true, because it's, it's funny you mentioned that, because I remember the prank that Jerry Kuzman pulled on Tom Seaver. He right. had Tom Seaver being traded to the Astros, Astros for Doug Rader and another player, 
and like the that Mets the, hated Doug Rader yeah. on, on top of it. And Seaver, the thought of going to the Astros when he pulled that prank was, you know, they right. hated that team. That, that's funny that you bring that up. In 1971, in route to your second All-Star game, which you, you couldn't appear in, you start the season 10-1. and one. You start experiencing elbow issues. You're only 23 years old, but at that point, you've already logged well over 1,200 innings in the major leagues. What's going through your mind when you start dealing with arm issues at such a, a young age? Uh, <laughs> my, what was going through my mind is that I hope they had enough cortisone to get me through the end of the year. Um, I just really had uh, good control. I still had the stuff of, of my youth, but the pitch that was really making my elbow burn was a slider. And in a way, I was kind of convinced myself that it, I was throwing it well. I was throwing it well, and I was throwing it accurately, and it was my out pitch, and, and I relied heavily upon it. And I think that was the pitch that probably um, probably put me out, the, the the start that I made before the All-Star game was at Candlestick Park, and it was cold and windy as usual. And uh, I, I didn't pitch all that well, but we got a whole bunch of runs. And so I was just determined to get five innings. And uh, maybe, maybe that fourth and fifth inning might have put me out for the rest of the year because I missed the All-Star game and I – I was on the DL for a couple of weeks, and I tried to come back, and I still had trouble both in terms of performance and in terms of the injury of the pain. And by the, I guess maybe two or three starts after the, um, after the All Star game, I shut it down, and my elbow really didn't stop hurting till Christmas. So it was a good thing that I stopped that year. By the blue. was also ten and one when I was ten and one. And I think the Sporting News had a a a article that showed our pictures and everything. And the and the um, headline was too young to win thirty. Well, that seems ridiculous now, but it was only nineteen sixty eight when McLean won thirty or thirty one. So this was sixty. This was seventy one. So it it really wasn't that far uh, into the realm of impossibility. Um, and I think I had won twenty six or seven that year. I ended up twelve and six. Um, but you know, there was such good pitching back then. If you if you went down every team, you find some teams had a guy that was going to be in the Hall of Fame, and some teams had two, right. at least in the National League. And then there were also you know guys like Catfish Hunter, Jim Palmer, uh, McLean, Lolich. Uh, there were, you know, not quite as many in the American League, but there were also a, more than a few guys that would end up in the Hall of Fame. So, you know, that eventually led to the DH. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting also because despite your arm issues, you continue to pitch through 1976, which was your last full season as well as your last with the Astros. You go 13 and 14, have a 3.69 ERA, 112 strikeouts. Um, and then on July 9th, you know hit the Montreal Expo 6 nothing before 12,511 fans at the Astrodome. At what point did you start thinking that, wow, I, I might have a no-hitter here? Well, I, I started thinking, I started getting jacked up for it around the 6th or 7th inning. Uh, I was asked when I, after the game when I first knew it, and I, I said I knew it right after the first inning. 
And I said that because I actually did think about it walking off the mound. You know, I was at the end of the end of my rope. I didn't have much left. I was practically throwing sidearm at the time. And I just thinking, I can't remember the last time I got through the first inning. One, two, three. After that, you know, I just started pitching. I wasn't obviously I wasn't thinking about pitching a no hitter, um, but I did think about not having given up a hit in the first inning. Then uh, I started getting a, a big adrenaline kick about the seventh, and I was throwing mostly fastballs again. I felt like I'd you know gone back to ten years in time the way my arm felt, and I ended up throwing all fastballs the last two innings. Uh, we were in the dome. And as most people know, it was really hard to hit the ball out there. And the last no hitter I had uh, going was in '69, and I uh, had two outs in the ninth inning in Atlanta. And I uh, threw Felix on a slider, they chopped it in the hole at short, beat it out. So what I had on my mind then, since I had, and that game was nothing, nothing. So even if I got the nine inning no hitter, I was still had to go on. Um, but uh, when I got to that that point in the Astrodome, I just said, I've got the ball sailing here. They're hitting the ball in the air. They're swinging through it and missing. And if I can do anything to keep the ball in the air, that's what I'm going to try to do. And so I think I had three or four strikeouts. And, uh, the last ball was a kind of a ball that ran in on Mike Jordan, uh, Jorgensen. And he, he tried he tried to uh, not pop up, and he... And he uh, he succeeded in that, but he, he jammed himself and, and hit a ground ball to first. So that was it. I remember that very clearly, as you might imagine. And uh, I, I remember so. also thinking, this must be a gift from God because I don't have anywhere near the kind of stuff that I had before. I had a perfect game going in shade when I was 19 and lost that in the ninth inning. So the times when I had it going before, I threw much harder as you know, better movement on my fastball and everything else, but you, know, you never know uh, which time is going to be the charm. I guess that was it, third time. So awesome, awesome memory, awesome game. You know, you transitioned from player to announcer. You mentioned earlier that you had heard Vince Scully describe a slider, so you obviously growing up heard a lot of Dodger games, and when you were on the DL in St. Louis, you also heard Jack Buck a lot. How much of those two, you know, listening to those two guys were an influence on your broadcasting career? I think they both were. Um, uh, they had different styles, but uh, they, they were just really, I think they were, were the two best. I think maybe Ernie Harwell was in that class too, but I was never in the American League, so I didn't hear Ernie. But I, I think there were, you know, three guys that were regarded as, you know, above the rest. And I think those are the, the three in. I don't know about Ernie. I think he deserved it. I know that Benny and, and Jack did because I got to hear Jack a lot when uh, I was on the DL in St. Louis. Um, and obviously, it's it's not the kind of thing that you can copy somebody else. It was the same with managing. You know, when they asked me about um, did I admire anybody when I modeled myself after anybody, and I Name two or three guys that I thought were good, but I said, I'm going to have to be myself. Uh, I'm not going to be able to copy somebody else. And, and it was the same way with broadcasting, but I think uh, what you do get uh, 
from them is, is a sense of the drama and, and the pressure point and how they handled, um, you know, critical calls in important situations. And even though Jack was had more of a dry sense of humor, and Vinny was probably uh, a little more uh, um, eloquent, uh, they both knew how to milk that big moment and set it up and then pay it off. And so if you, if you listen to that enough, then I think you can, in your own way, try to do the same thing. So you do this for 17 years. And in 17 years, you've watched, and probably over 17 years, watched and criticized managers for decisions they make. And then one of be- which was Terry Collins, by right. the way. <laughs> and and then, then you Just become <laughs> then you become the manager. When you took that job, what led to that to say, hey, I want to leave the broadcast booth and become a field manager? And what did you take with it from the broadcast booth when you started doing the job on the field? Well I, I took a lot really. I think you know I, I didn't learn anything about how to manage ball players up in the booth. Uh, and having a little experience uh, with the traditional uh, way of coming up through the minor leagues, uh, I would have learned a little bit more about dealing with the players. What I learned as a broadcaster uh, was everything that Bill James was writing um, and others that were starting the analytics movements. Uh, and I, I started to analyze how how runs were scored and prevented. So I think I realized at that point that bunting wasn't a very good idea unless the pitcher was hitting and that uh, the hit and run was kind of an anachronism. It was a great play for the dead ball era, but when you had guys throwing 100 miles an hour with fork balls or diving in the dirt, it's kind of hard to put the pressure on the hitter to make contact. So we did steal a lot. with our good hitters, I said, look, if a guy's stealing, you get a good pitch to hit, hit it. So sometimes that looked like a hit and run, but it very seldom was. And uh, I think we we succeeded a lot with that because I think that the steal, uh, if, if you've got five or six guys in your lineup that could conceivably steal, and they might do it in, in any situation that calls for a steal, you know, they're not going to do it if you're way ahead late in the game. But if the pitcher is always thinking that this team has to run or likes to run, then he has to think about holding runners. And, of course, I did myself as a pitcher. And so I think uh, when you're concerned about the runner and the hitter, it divides your attention. And I think there's a little bit better chance you'll make a mistake to the hitter if you're trying to hold the runner close. So we did run a lot, but we didn't hit and run a lot. And those two things, I think, were because of the things I learned being an announcer. Interesting. So, Larry, this is Ryan Sherman. You mentioned so casually adding two breaking ball pitches right before (laughs) you got to the major leagues, and it made me think of uh, Cleveland Indians pitcher Trevor Bauer using pitch design and analytics to add to his repertoire and the contrast between you just, you know, get out there, throw a sinker, throw a slider. What made that so natural for you? And if that technology was around back then, do you think you would use it? Um... Yeah, I think we, I think they just showed me how to do it, and then I started pitching to hitters, and, and it worked. Um, it was 
if I were around these days, or, or let's say the analytics had been uh, already analyzed and, and put out there uh, during the time that I pitched, I think I would have had a much better change-up, if you will, because the one I threw was like a forkball. I didn't wrap my fingers all the way around it, but I spread my fingers and pushed the ball back in my hand, and, and I actually tried to take the take the speed off the ball. Um, and at times it was good, at times most of the time it wasn't that good. But if I would have just put my fingertips down on the ball and thrown it hard, I would have been throwing a, a splitter. But nobody knew about a splitter until Bruce Souter, so I was done before I knew about that. But I think that would have been just perfectly natural for the way I threw. It really is interesting the, the way you just brought that up, Ryan, because you take a look at, at how certain pitchers cross paths with certain coaches. And you look what Roger Craig did for so many pitchers with the Giants when he was there and, and pitches they, he taught them, or, or even you know Pedro Martinez coming up with, with Guy Conti. And just you know if you get the right person with the right type of pitcher you, to add two or three pitchers to a pitcher's repertoire, you know changes a pitcher from a star to, to an all-star. Uh, it's also interesting, while you're the manager uh, of the Astros, they make the playoffs four of the five seasons. You're elected as manager of the year in 1998. Um, you run up against the Braves uh, and their amazing staff three times and the Padres once. Looking back at it, are there any regrets of any of those four playoff series? Do you, do you look back and say, you know, if only I did this in this series, or knowing that, you know, you were up against that brave staff, there's nothing you could have done? Um, I, I don't have any regrets in the sense that uh, afterwards I, I said, well, I should have done this, or I wish I'd done that. Um, the regret that we played those two teams <laughs> uh, you know, when you have to face Randy Johnson, and uh, I mean, well, we we pitch Randy Johnson. When you face Kevin Brown and he beats Randy Johnson, then you know you, the matchups after that don't look so favorable. In that series, uh, we got to San Diego one and one, and uh, they started uh, Kevin Brown again on the fourth day. And I thought, well, since uh, if I hold Randy back. Uh, then Randy will be pitching against one of their other starters, and I figured we'd win that. Well, the Kevin Brown didn't pitch anywhere near as well, but uh, uh, I think it was the captain pitched pretty well. And they, they won a game that wasn't, uh, it was contested. Uh, but then the next day uh, was the one that was a big surprise. Randy didn't throw as well in that day, and they got a couple of runs. And uh, Sterling Hoffman pitched for the Padres and struck out 12 or 13 guys. It's probably the greatest game he ever pitched in, in his life. Yep. Uh, against the Braves, Kevin Millwood pitched a one-hitter against us. Uh, one of the games that John Smoltz pitched against us in the Dome, we went up nine up and nine down, and he hadn't thrown a breaking ball yet. <laughs> he was just throwing 96 or 97 and just picking the corners apart, back and forth one corner or the other. And when a guy throws that hard with movement and, and does nothing but hit, throw right on the corners, he can tell you it's coming. And obviously by about third or fourth inning, we knew it was coming because he hadn't thrown an off-speed pitcher or a breaking ball. So we actually got to see some of the best pitching um, probably than anybody's seen in the playoffs. But also uh, our big guys were Bagwell and Biggio and, and Moises Alou. And there were times during the regular season where we hit those guys. We beat Lavin, we beat 
Maddox. We beat uh, Kevin Brown. So all those guys that pitched these amazing games against us, I didn't think they were guys we couldn't hit. I just know that on certain nights you're not going to hit them, and other times you are. So in all those games, it would be hard for me to say I regret anything because I just think we came up against some really tough competition. I didn't really feel like I I messed up anything in terms of substitutions or signs or pinch hitting or pitching changes. It's just that's the way it went. And then later on uh, in 2004 with Phil Garner managing the team, uh, Bagwell and Bitchio were pretty good in the uh, – in the postseason, uh, we had Berkman. He was pretty good, and our pitchers were, were good enough to get by the Braves in 2004, and then lost to the Cardinals in 2005. They got by the Braves and beat the Cardinals and went to the World Series. So I think I could have been in the dugout just as easily as, as Phil could have. It's just the way it went down. So, so being in the dugout, June June 13th, 1999, you were in the dugout in a game against the San Diego Padres, and you have a medical event. Can you walk us through what happened, how you felt, and how that affected basically you going forward after that, your outlook on life and things like that? Well, I had a grand mal seizure in the dugout. I have something called an ABM, which is uh, when uh, arteries and veins are malfigured uh, in the sense that I think it's the artery uh, this builds into the vein, and the artery is a bigger vessel, and so it puts too much pressure on that connection, and if it breaks, you have a, a brain bleed, and if that happens, you have a seizure. So I was very lucky. Uh, all I felt uh, the night before and the day of was a mild headache, and I took some Advil, and it went away. So I had no, uh, I had no premonition. I had no way of... Uh, of looking back and saying I should have known, I should have had been checked, because it just didn't seem like anything. And then I was uh, I was really lucky because you can die from that, and and if you have a malformation in certain parts of your brain, they can't they can't operate. If you have it on the right frontal lobe, they can go in there and fix it without having any. Uh, effect, or at least probably having no effect on anything, you know, your speech or your hearing or your balance or anything you might lose when when something in your brain uh, is damaged. So I didn't lose anything. And uh, I went home, I think, on the third or fourth day, and the doctor said I could walk for uh, I could walk for 20 minutes, and so I did that. And the next day I called him and I said, well, if I can walk 20 minutes, could I hit a bucket of balls? Yeah, I see. I guess you could. So I went down and hit some balls. And so the next day, uh, I thought, well, if I can hit a bucket of balls, I don't hit any more than that when I play. So I wasn't going to call him and ask him if I could play. I just went out and played. So that was about a week after the, the seizure. You know, there are people that have that, uh, that same malformation in different parts of their brain. And they're housebound the rest of their lives. They can't have it operated on. They can't drive a, a car. They can't do anything. And, it, you know, it really uh, it can be have a severe impact on life. On, on me, not so much. But uh, also on me was, uh, was the understanding that the other thing could have happened 
and probably a little bit of a a change in, in mental outlook towards life, you know, to to just cherishing uh, all the time that you have and, and being thankful, grateful for it, because knowing how you, something could be taken away in a moment. Well, yeah, it changed my outlook towards life a little bit, but I didn't feel like it, it you know, had much effect on my managing. And certainly I was able to play golf just as well as I had before. I was, I was just lucky that it was... It happened where it did. Lastly, your newest career endeavor is the development of a website designed to entertain, inform, and excite baseball fans with America's favorite pastime. Can you tell our audience a little bit about 49sfastball.com? Well, this was a... Um, I, I've kind of been hoping to get back in the booth with the Astros, and when that didn't work out, I I, I wanted to uh, do something. I my wife got cancer and she didn't. She didn't make it. So we did that for a year and a half, and and it was about Christmas time in uh, 2017. So 2018, last year, I thought I need something to make me concentrate on something other than uh, you know just being sad and, and grieving and, and and dwelling and everything. I thought I've got to get started, and so I. I had about 500, uh, what today you would call podcasts at the time. Uh, what I modeled them after was, uh, the, um, the rest of Paul Harvey, the rest of the story type things. And so I would come on and I would tease it with, on this day in baseball history, uh, Willie Mays, uh, hit four run, home runs in Atlanta. But there's something surprising about this story more after this. And so that day, Joey Malfitano uh, was talking to Mays, and Mays was feeling sick. And he he asked him if he still had a bat that he gave him. Uh, and Joey said, you know, he gave me this bat because it felt too light to him. And I liked it. I was using it in batting practice, but I hadn't hardly ever played. And and so, you know, when he asked me if I had a guy, I gave him a bat and hit four home runs. <laughs> so, you know, there's so many of those things like that. I, I got... 500 of them, and, you know, they're all about three and three and a half minutes long, and, you know, you can get, I think you can get them by getting on any of the ways you get on a podcast, and uh, what we did was we ran the shows on the day that the thing happened in the past, so it was like a this day in baseball history thing, and they're pretty good, you know, I mean, very they're, good. It's definitely I, I, a... I listened to them recently, and they, they, um, I'm proud of them. I don't know if I could do it as good if I tried it now. It's great, great stuff. Larry, we appreciate your time so much for you know, coming on with us tonight. Great talking to you about a lot of awesome baseball history. Thanks so much. Well, I'll tell you what, you guys did your homework. I'm impressed. <laughs> Thanks, Larry. Hopefully we'll speak to you down the road. We'll talk uh, some Astros baseball. All right. Thanks a lot. We got Larry Durker, legend of the Colt 45s and Houston Astros.